Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Depression affects millions of people every day. For many, painful physical symptoms add to the burden of depression. Duloxetine is an antidepressant that has demonstrated efficacy for major depressive disorder. Susan Ball and colleagues conducted an analysis of 11 studies to look at the effect of duloxetine on painful symptoms. The 11 studies, which examined the efficacy of duloxetine in major depressive disorder, also measured the severity of associated pain symptoms. For each of the studies, patients who experienced at least a moderate amount of pain at entry into the study were selected for analysis. A measure of improvement was computed to find out how much improvement these patients experienced within the study for their depressive illness and for their associated pain symptoms. These measures of improvement were then weighted by how many patients were in the study and the variability among patients. The authors found that across the 11 trials, the overall improvement measure showed that duloxetine 60 milligrams once daily improved both the depressive illness and the painful physical symptoms. The study did not, however, examine whether other antidepressants may also improve painful physical symptoms associated with depression. As Farlow and colleagues point out, the mode of drug delivery is an important consideration in optimizing drug therapy, as it can affect treatment compliance and outcomes. And it is particularly important to develop optimal drug formulations for chronic diseases or conditions in the elderly for whom treatment compliance is known to be low. The authors searched Medline for articles describing the development, use, efficacy, and safety of licensed transdermal patch treatments for neurologic conditions that affect the elderly. They reviewed the features of transdermal systems and compared transdermal and oral formulations. The five transdermal patch systems available for neurologic conditions in adults include rivastigmine, rotigotine, selegiline, lidocaine, and capsaicin. All are modern formulations and matrix patches specifically developed to provide appropriate drug dosages in acceptable and well-tolerated forms. Transdermal patches can offer benefits to patients over oral formulations in terms of ease of use, simple treatment regimens, and avoidance of first-pass and peak-dose effects. One challenge of transdermal delivery is skin application site reactions. Although the majority of reactions are mild in severity and resolve spontaneously after patch removal. Often the advantages of using transdermal medications over oral formulations outweigh minor skin reactions and preventative and palliative measures can limit reactions. The authors conclude that transdermal patches can offer benefits to patients over oral formulations. These benefits may be particularly relevant for treatment compliance and tolerability in elderly patients with chronic conditions including Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Moving on. 
Porphyria's form a group of rare inherited metabolic disorders, each resulting from a partial deficiency of a specific enzyme in the heme biosynthesis pathway. Of the seven types of porphyria, four present with neuropsychiatric manifestations and are termed acute porphyrias. They are often misdiagnosed and most commonly present as atypical neuropsychiatric symptoms or acute abdominal pain. Jane and colleagues present a case of a 34-year-old woman with recurrent admission to the psychiatry department. The patient would present with sadness, delusions of persecution, auditory hallucinations, suicidal ideas, insomnia, fatigue, abdominal pain, backache, and sometimes seizures. Porphyria was suspected, and diagnostic studies found results suggested of hereditary coproporphyria. Changes in patient management led to improvement. Clinicians should suspect a porphyria in patients presenting with variable neuropsychiatric symptoms and unexplained pain. Common precipitating factors of acute porphyrias are high stress situation, luteal phase of menses in females, and crash dieting. Cigarette smoking, alcohol, and various medications play an important role in acute porphyrias, and their interactions with cytochrome P450 enzymes cause induction of heme synthesis, leading to acute episodes. Although biochemical measurements of excreted porphyrins and porphyrin precursors in urine, plasma, and stool reveal acute porphyrias in majority of cases, none of these tests are sensitive or specific for acute porphyrias. Repeated testing is advised in cases wherein the disease is suspected. Proper identification can lead to careful selection of medications and proper management for improved patient outcome. Next, symptoms of ADHD persist into adulthood in approximately two-thirds of childhood patients with an estimated adult prevalence of more than 4%. ADHD is a substantial medical problem for adults causing functional impairments in multiple life domains. Various non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic treatment options offer unique advantages and limitations. The authors of this study reveal several non-pharmacologic interventions and the efficacy, safety, and abuse liability of approved treatments for adults with ADHD with a focus on a novel pro-drug medication. A broad search of literature databases was conducted to identify relevant clinical trials, meta-analyses, randomized control trials, and reviews published over approximately nine years that focused on adults. Epidemiologic data revealed that only about 11% of adults with ADHD had received treatment during the prior 12 months. Several U.S. Food and Drug Administration-approved long-acting stimulants and a non-stimulant with proven efficacy and safety profiles have been developed. Long-acting stimulants differ in formulation characteristics used to achieve extended release. Long-acting methylphenidate formulations use an asthmatic release technology or pH-dependent beads. 
Long-acting amphetamine formulations use beaded technology as well as long-acting D-amphetamine pro-drug formulation. These features variably affect pharmacokinetic characteristics, duration of action, and abuse liability. However, all of these formulations are generally efficacious and safety profiles are similar. Although pharmacotherapy is usually considered first line, renewed interest has developed in evidence-based non-pharmacologic strategies to supplement medications, especially in adult patients. Understanding the available non-pharmacologic adjunctive or alternative options and unique characteristics of various long-acting pharmacotherapy options is critical to the ongoing management of ADHD in clinical practice. As the authors of the next study point out, Studies in the past have consistently demonstrated a relationship between alcohol or substance abuse and criminal behavior. Most of these studies examine this relationship in either active substance users or individuals in the community. No study has examined this relationship in a clinical sample. Sansone and colleagues examined the relationship between alcohol or substance misuse and criminal behavior in a clinical sample. Using a survey methodology, the authors gave a self-report survey to a consecutive sample of 376 internal medicine outpatients. Nearly two-thirds of the sample were women and nearly 90% were white. The survey asked participants, have you ever had a problem with alcohol? And have you ever had a problem with drugs? In addition to these two questions, the authors asked participants about past legal charges, but not necessarily convictions, for any of 27 criminal behaviors. These 27 criminal behaviors were based upon the crime cataloging schema used by the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. As for the results of the study, Males with either alcohol or drug problems reported the greatest number of charges for different criminal behaviors, both in univariate and multivariate analyses. These findings are consistent with the previous literature, but they are novel because the study took place in a primary care outpatient setting. According to these findings, clinicians need to be aware of the possible criminal behavior in patients, particularly males, with histories of alcohol or substance misuse. Moving on. Metabolic risk factors, termed metabolic syndrome, include obesity, diabetes, dyslipidemia, and hypertension, and are more common in patients with bipolar disorder than in the general population and medications used to treat bipolar disorder carry some risk of worsening metabolic parameters. The next study was conducted at 46 study centers in the United States, although only 31 study centers enrolled patients in the 40-week extension phase. Patients with a dsm 4 diagnosis of acute bipolar 1 mania, manic or mixed, who required hospitalization were randomly assigned to double-blind aripiprazole, lithium, or placebo for three weeks. Patients treated with aripiprazole or lithium continued treatment to week 12, after which they could enter a double-blind 40-week extension phase. 
Patients were enrolled in the 12-week acute treatment phase between April 2004 and July 2006. Changes in metabolic parameters were compared between patients treated with aripiprazole or lithium for up to 52 weeks using last observation carried forward and analysis of covariance. An analysis stratified by baseline body mass index was also conducted. Modest increases in body weight were observed in both groups. A significant difference in body weight increase was observed only among patients with a body mass index greater than 25. Mean changes from baseline to week 52 in fasting levels of total cholesterol, high-density lipoprotein cholesterol, low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, plasma glucose, triglycerides, or insulin were small in both the aripiprazole and lithium treatment groups, and no significant differences were observed. Mean laboratory values were within the normal or borderline range for both treatment groups across all body mass index categories. Modest and similar changes in metabolic parameters occurred with aripiprazole or lithium treatment for up to one year. The authors recommend that all patients with bipolar disorder should undergo regular metabolic health monitoring. Next, in the last decade, a significant incidence of depression in the younger population has been observed. Bright light therapy is an effective therapeutic option for depressed adults and could also provide safe, economical, and effective rapid recovery in adolescents. The authors of the next article conducted a randomized trial between February and December of 2010 that included 28 German inpatients between 14 and 17 years old with depressive complaints. Half of the patients first received placebo, which consisted of low-light therapy for one hour a day in the morning for one week, and then received bright light therapy for one hour a day in the morning for one week. The other half received bright light therapy and then received placebo. For assessment of depression symptoms, the Beck Depression Inventory was administered one week before and one day before placebo treatment, on the day between placebo and bright light treatment, and on the day after and one week after bright light treatment. Saliva samples of melatonin and cortisol were collected two times per day, one week before and one day before placebo treatment, on the day between placebo and bright light treatment, on the day after bright light treatment, and one week after bright light treatment to observe any change in circadian timing. The study participants' Beck Depression Inventory scores improved significantly, and the assays of saliva showed significant differences between treatment and placebo for evening melatonin levels. No significant adverse reactions were observed. The results show that antidepressant response to bright light treatment in this age group was statistically superior to placebo. 
As Taylor and colleagues point out, the weight impact produced by the atypical antipsychotic olanzapine has been explored in meta-analyses focusing on patients with schizophrenia. However, outcomes identified for schizophrenia patients cannot always be generalized to patients with bipolar disorder. This study aims to quantitatively estimate the impact of olanzapine on the weight of patients with bipolar disorder. The authors searched Embase, Medline, and PsychInfo using the keywords olanzapine and bipolar or acute mania in conjunction with weight gain or weight increase with no restrictions on dates of publication. The search identified 110 articles for review. The inclusion criteria for the chosen studies were a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, the presence of an olanzapine monotherapy group, a comparative placebo or monotherapy group, and mean weight gain and or incidences of weight gain data. The process identified 13 studies for inclusion. The primary outcome measure was the mean weight change between olanzapine monotherapy and comparative monotherapy reported in kilograms. Standard deviation was extracted directly from studies when possible and imputed for three studies. The secondary outcome measure was the reported incidences of greater than 7% weight gain. Currently available data suggests that olanzapine is associated with significant weight gain in bipolar patients. The authors suggest that issues related to side effect profiles and their impact on treatment compliance and physical health outcomes should be considered when selecting pharmacotherapy. Next, we invite you to engage in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen in the Institute's Memory Disorders Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of an 81-year-old widow who presented for evaluation of cognitive impairment that included repeating questions and statements in conversations, difficulty with concentration, and trouble completing complex tasks such as management of finances. The patient was also experiencing depressive symptoms related to the death of her husband. Does the patient meet criteria for dementia? Does she have mild cognitive impairment or an underlying psychiatric disorder? What should her treatment plan entail? Answer these and other questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this exciting offering. Moving on. As patients with somatization disorders age, it is important for physicians to remain especially vigilant to recognize the appearance of new medical conditions. Illnesses commonly accompanying the aging process may be buried in the blur of presenting symptoms or missed due to a dismissive approach to the patient's continuing complaints. In the case presentation from this issue's psychotherapy casebook, read how an internist and psychiatrist helped a 70-year-old woman manage her somatization disorder. 
By establishing trusting relationships and remaining focused and available, the medical team was able to address some of the patient's emotional complaints over time and successfully tend to her physical needs. Finally, have you ever wondered whether psychiatric symptoms manifest differently in Latino patients? Have you puzzled over the best method to screen for psychiatric problems in Latino patients? If you have, then the latest case vignette in our popular series, Rounds in the General Hospital from Dr. Theodore Stern and colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital, should serve to elucidate some of the issues faced by physicians who care for Latino patients. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including a variety of letters, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS Soundbites.